This morning, if you would, turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Begin reading in verse 19. Psalm 118, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I'll take a break uh, this week uh, from Matthew chapter 5. My mind yesterday was stirred on this particular verse. I saw something uh, on the internet or someplace that quoted this verse. And <clears throat> this verse is one of many which is taken out of its context and often misunderstood. In fact, when I was with another order of people as a child, I can remember in Sunday school class, we sang a little song from this verse. And basically the intent of the song was that each day that we have, obviously the Lord has made and we're supposed to always rejoice and be glad in that day. Now there's truth in that. Uh, The Lord has made this world, all things herein. We also find in Colossians 1 that Jesus Christ made all things and by him all things consist. That means they are held together. In Hebrews 1 it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. This world continues to be because the Lord upholds it. He commanded it was done. He spake and it stood fast. Ecologists are worried today about the destruction of this earth for reasons different than what the wicked should be worried about the destruction of this earth. Uh, The ecologist is worried that the further you drive and the more gas you burn, the more cattle that we have in the fields, uh, the more damage we're doing to this earth and we're eventually going to destroy it. Well, the word of God is clear that it's gonna stand fast. I'm not worried about the things the ecologists are worried about. I do believe that we ought to be mindful of the world in which we live. The Lord has made it, and we ought to respect it. And we ought to understand that it's his, it's not ours. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we ought to respect what God has made. We shouldn't intentionally pollute it, try to uh, dirty it. But uh, you driving a a V8 engine vehicle that gets 15 miles to the gallon is not going to destroy this world, it's just not gonna happen. Uh, But there is a day of destruction coming. Uh, Peter talks about it in 2 Peter, when he says that the elements shall melt with fervent heat, that there is going to be a great noise. And when you understand what Peter talks about there about the destruction of this world at the second coming, that Greek language literally means that all the atoms of the earth will be untied. You know what that is? A major atomic explosion. And so it's almost as if the Lord at the last day will destroy the earth, maybe by some kind of nuclear sweep. But either way, we know it's going to be the Lord that does it. And until that day, it's reserved. Uh, This earth is reserved. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he makes clear that this very ground upon which it is reserved to judgment. Uh, There's a day of judgment for this earth, just as there are for the wicked, and that day will come. Um, Obviously, I believe today is a day that the Lord has made, uh, and I'm thankful. I try to rejoice and be glad uh, for every day that the Lord blesses me upon the earth, but I have to confess there are some days of my life that even as I look back in history upon, I can't rejoice in and I can't be glad about. I'll never forget April 3rd of 1992 when the news came to me that my grandfather had passed away. That day is etched in my mind forever. And that's a day that I can't look back upon and rejoice and be glad in. You say, well, Brother Chris, your grandfather went to heaven. I know he did, and I'm thankful that he's in heaven. But death is an enemy, the Bible says. And so there's a part of that day that is always wretched to me. And every year that it comes along, I... Remember the pain of what that day was like when uh, 
At about 6.30 in the morning, that news came to my ears. I'll never forget February 11th of 2022 when Brother Julian left this world and went to be with the Lord in glory, and I'm thankful he's with the Lord. But um, when I look back upon that day, it's a day of darkness for me. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of grief. And there's other days like that in my life. And even in the Word of God, we find individuals that experience days like that. And uh, understandably, they wanted that day completely blotted out. For instance, Job and his experience. And I realize Job wasn't in the right frame of mind uh, throughout all of his experience, but it was real what he was going through. And so he says in the third chapter of the book of Job, he says, he cursed his day. He said, let the day perish when I was born and the night in which it was said, there's a man child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. He says, let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined in the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. What's he describing there? He's saying, I wish the day had never existed in which I was born. I wish God could just have passed over that day, that the calendar could have rolled around and that day would have never been. Have you ever had days in your life that were that way? That you would to God that the calendar would have just passed on by that day and the things that you experienced in that day never would have occurred. That's what Job was there describing. So there's going to be times in our life that we face days that, yes, it's true the Lord is keeping this world. And yes, it's by the blessing of God and his preserving power that we live to see another day. But that doesn't mean that every day that you and I see is always going to be a day of plenty and a day of great glory. There are going to be days of trouble. Uh, Job himself said, man that is born of a woman, he's a few days and full of trouble. And that's just the reality of our fallen condition. Now, let me hasten to say that's not how God intended it to be. Uh, when he uh, finished his work of creation on the seventh day and rested, he then commanded man in the garden that he was to dress and keep what God had made for him, a paradise here on earth. And that was the intention of God for Adam to dwell in that beautiful and glorious place called Eden. Uh, it was watered uh, uh, from the mist of the ground. Uh, it was just a place to dress and keep. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, Brother Quentin and Brother Don and I were down here and we were dealing with Adam's curse. Uh, we were dealing with thorns and thistles and briars and the flower beds around this building to try to uh, make it look again a, a bit like a paradise. But uh, Adam didn't have to do that. That's not the kind of dressing and keeping he did in the Garden of Eden. It kind of reminds me of an old English lady just walking about her uh, uh, rose garden and just uh, from time to time clipping something back and then maybe cutting some flowers uh, to bring into the house. That's about what Adam had in the Garden of Eden. And of course, all that was destroyed when Satan beguiled Eve and she ate and gave to her husband and he did eat and then their eyes were opened and then they knew they were naked and when God called for them they hid themselves away from the face of God so then in Psalm 118 what is this verse about is it that every single day of our experience on earth is a day that we're going to rejoice and be glad in no that's not what the verse is talking about the verse is talking about a very particular day in redemptive history, a very special day, but it was also a very dark day. It was dark for the Son of God. It was dark for God the Father. And even when you and I look at it appropriately, there's a sadness connected with that day, but also great joy that is also attached to it because of the results of what was accomplished on that particular day. And if you don't know what day that is. It's alluded to in the verses prior. When he says again in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them. He's plainly letting God know. Open the way to righteousness. What does that mean? It means open the way where righteousness will be found. For the saints of God. There was a particular way and only one way in which you and I could ever appear before God in a righteous state. You and I would have forever been in the state that Adam plunged us in had it not been uh, for God opening to the Lord Jesus Christ a particular gate, a gate of righteousness. He says, and I will go into them, he says, and I will praise the Lord. Now, 
understand what these gates are. He's talking about Calvary. He's talking specifically about the cross and the pain and the suffering and the wrath of God that he would have to endure for you and I. That is the day under consideration which the Lord has made and you and I are to rejoice and be glad in it. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, when he uh, looked to the cross, he endured the cross, uh, uh, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. So even the Lord Jesus Christ, as he went approaching Calvary, he endured that. He despised the shame of it, but there was a joy in it that was set before him that he could see an accomplishment thereof that is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53 when it says, He shall see at the travail of his soul. And be satisfied. By my righteous servant. He shall justify many. So here again it says. This is the Lord's. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad. Notice verse 22. He says open to me the gates of righteousness. I'll go to them. I'll praise the Lord. He says this gate of the Lord. Into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In three gospel accounts, the Lord Jesus quotes this verse about himself. In the fourth chapter, the book of Acts, in one of the sermons that Peter preaches, that lands him in prison, is... Um, it contains this verse. He also quotes it. The Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus in the second chapter, he quotes this verse as well. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, he quotes it also. So this verse is referenced six times in the New Testament. Six different times this particular verse is referred to. Now before we get to the stone that's under consideration here, look for a moment in Isaiah the 28th chapter. In Isaiah chapter 28, in verse 16 it says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. He says it's a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. The New Testament uh, rendition of that, He that believeth shall not be confounded. Uh, this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, if we haven't understood that already. Again, notice what he says, I lay in Zion. This is God the Father says, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. He says, this is a tried stone. That means you can trust it. Uh, the Bible tells us to prove all things. That means try all things, hold fast, that which is good. Uh, God put as the foundation of his redeeming work a tried stone. He didn't put something out there that might work, could possibly work, uh, hopefully would work. He put something upon this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that was already proven to be effective, that he knew that it would work. Uh, so notice again, he says, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone. And then he says, a precious cornerstone. The word precious there means rare. Uh, there's no other like him. Uh, there's not another. He's the chiefest among 10,000 Solomon would say as he spoke as the bride of the bridegroom. Uh, he's the best of the best. He is above all uh, that there is upon the face of this earth. So again he says behold I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. So he that believeth shall not Make haste. He that believes on this foundation, he doesn't have to flee away, does not have to be afraid. But notice what it says the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Notice Isaiah speaks of this stone. And the very fact that he mentions believers indicates there's going to be some that won't believe. There's going to be some that will have to make haste. There's going to be some that will refuse him. And that's exactly what Jesus says here in Psalm 118. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Turn with me to Matthew, the 21st chapter. In Matthew chapter 21, the Lord Jesus, he quotes this verse as he's before a number of Pharisees. And as I've mentioned a number of times in the sermons on Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ did not capitulate. 
He did not compromise with the wicked of this world. The Lord was not what we would today call politically correct. He called a spade a spade, if you will. He said things exactly as they were. Uh, he did not try to gloss over or act like something doesn't exist. Now, we'll find that Jesus was very merciful to penitent sinners. Uh, he was one that would go to a tax collector, Matthew, and call him to be a disciple and later an apostle of his. And this was a despised individual among the Jewish people. Uh, this is the same one that would let a woman, which was a great sinner, take the very perfume that she had seduced men with and anoint his feet and uh, uh, kiss his feet and uh, weep uh, and let the tears of her eyes drop upon his feet and then wipe those tears with the hairs of her head. This is the same one that would eat with publicans and sinners. This is the one that in John the fourth chapter, when he met the woman of Samaria at the well, uh, notice what he says to her when she uh, he says to call her husband and she begins to tell him a little about her family situation. He says, I already know all that. I know you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. I know you've married five and now you're just living with one. He says, I know all about that. And then at the end of that, you know what he told her? Go and sin no more. What you're doing, don't keep doing that. So the Lord could be quite merciful and quite kind to those who were broken. But for those who were haughty and proud and arrogant in their stance of sin, he had no pity towards them. He was very direct. He could be quite sharp. Notice here in Matthew chapter 21, he's going to speak a parable. He's been talking with these men and They've irritated him and bothered him and they, in fact, verse 23, it says, by what authority doest thou these things and who gave thee this authority? As though they had the authority to even ask him uh, how he had this authority. And I love how Jesus answered. He says, I'll also ask you one thing. You've asked me one thing, I'll ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? Where's it come from? In other words, from heaven? Or of men. They reason with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not then believe him? But if we say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. You didn't live up to the bargain. You didn't answer, so I'm not going to answer. Now later he says in verse 33, Hear another parable. He said, There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard. Hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard come, and what will he do unto those husbandmen? He asked them. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. They don't realize that Jesus has just called out their own sins. Jesus has basically said, my father built a garden. He set a tower. He put vineyards therein and he expected fruit from it. And when he sent to receive the fruit, the men that he sent, the prophets of the Old Testament, you killed them. He says, and finally after he had sent multiple prophets to the people of Israel that were slain by Israel, he finally says, I'll send my son, they will reverence my son. What do they do instead? You know what? This is the son. Let's kill him. We'll take the inheritance. Well, they don't realize that Jesus has just indicted them. And it's much like David. Remember when Nathan came to him after his sin with Bathsheba? And he gave that parable about the wealthy man and the poor man. And how the wealthy man stole from him and took one little ewe lamb and slew it so that he could feed a traveler, a friend that was coming through. And David was wroth. David did not realize that Nathan has been talking about David this whole time. And here David says he will restore fourfold and that man shall be slain. 
And that's when Nathan said, thou art the man. Well, Jesus is essentially about to do the same thing. So Jesus has just said, what, what will he do to these husbandmen? Well, he will miserably destroy them. He said, they're wicked men. They say, they're wicked men. And he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Then Jesus saith unto them, did you never read in the scriptures? He knew they had read it. These men knew the scriptures. But you know, there's a lot of things I've read in the scriptures that don't come to mind at the time I really need them to come to mind. So Jesus is saying, something needs to come to mind for you folks that hasn't come to mind. He says, did you never read? <laughs> did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as the become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God should be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Notice these, these men get angry, but they fear the people right now more than their anger is uh, convincing them to take the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's going to turn. They're going to get to a point they're so angry with the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not going to care. In fact, they're going to incite a, rob my, uh, a, a, a mob riot, excuse me, I'll get the words right, a mob riot against the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, they're going to have a crowd of people there before Pilate and they're going to cry out, crucify him, I crucify him. Pilate will say, shall I crucify your king? And they're going to respond, we have no king but Caesar. Uh, there's going to come a moment when these wicked men are going to rile up the people and stir them up against the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but here in this moment when he quotes this verse and he lets them know uh, that the kingdom has been taken from them and given to another nation that they don't deserve uh, the things that they have had in the past, they know that he's speaking about them. And they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. They looked for an opportunity, but it just did not come. But notice what Jesus says, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. That sounds bad, but it's really not. But then he goes on to say, But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That is bad. The first one is an individual who realizes this is the Son of God. This is God's son. And when they fall upon him, what they're broken. It's what we've been talking about in Matthew chapter 5. When it says, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that recognize that they need righteousness. They hunger and thirst after it. Blessed are they that recognize they're destitute of anything that they can offer to him. So here's individuals that fall upon the rock, that fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They're broken, but there's a healing that comes. But he says there's other individuals that this rock, this stone shall fall upon them and it shall grind them to powder. You know, it's interesting at the last day what the wicked are going to cry for. The rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. They don't have to worry about it. The stone of Israel will grind them to powder that day. They're going to find their destruction. But here the Lord Jesus Christ, he quotes this. And as he does so, he lets them know that you have set this stone that God has appointed. At not meaning you've, rep, you've, you've given it no respect whatsoever. Look at Acts for just a moment, the fourth chapter, the 11th verse. We find the apostle Peter, he's quoting this as he's speaking probably to some of the very same men. In Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter, he's standing before, well, I know some of the same men because you got Annas the high priest, you have Caiaphas. Uh, we know they were present. Uh, they heard some of these things that Jesus spoke about. So here they, they set him and John in the midst. They asked, verse 7, by what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost, just like the Lord had told them this would occur. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, when you go before the councils, you're not to think ahead of the things you're going to say. He says, your father, he will give you the words. He will speak. Don't be concerned. Uh, so here in this moment, it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost. He said to them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified... <laughs> 
whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. Peter gets personal. The Lord was a little general in Psalm 118 and even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. He just said it was set at naught by the builders. He doesn't get real specific. Peter is very specific here and in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's very specific. You know, if I'd have been with John, I mean with Peter, if I'd have been John with Peter, I would have said to him, you know, Peter, there's a little of that sermon you could have probably left out. You know, you could have let them know that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You didn't have to say whom ye crucified. You could have just left that out. Uh, you didn't have to go on and say that you builders uh, set him at naught. You didn't have to say all that. But see, John was right there. And John also believed the very same things that Peter believed. They knew that these men were guilty of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they weren't afraid to say so. Notice again what Peter said. Be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What happened in John uh, Acts chapter 3? When Peter and John at the hour of prayer went together to the temple to pray. And they come to the gate called Beautiful. And there was that man begging. What did Peter say? He says, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And that man rose up. And he leapt into the temple. Uh, praising God and worshiping God. So now he says, here's how it was done. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him that this man stand here before you whole. He says, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And then he's going to drive the point home in the next verse. He says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Here the Apostle Peter, he's going to restrict salvation. He's going to let us know there's only one way. It's by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He says there's no other way, no other access into glory except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it was the Lord Jesus Christ that the gates of righteousness were opened to him and he walked through them. He is the only way by, whereby you and I have access before God. So back to Psalm 118 for a moment. He says, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. In Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah prophesies at the time that the temple would be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem after the children of Israel would come back from Babylon. After the Medo-Persian Empire would be defeated, excuse me, would defeat the Babylonians and Cyrus, king of Persia, would issue that decree that the Jews could go home. You have a man by the name of Zerubbabel who is the chief builder. He's the man who's leading the construction team, if you will, of the house of God. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the time comes where they lay the headstone. They're making progress in the building of the temple. And when they laid that headstone, you know what they said? They cried, grace, grace to it. They recognized that what was going on there was more than human accomplishment. That this was something that was being done by the help and hand of God. So he said, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Remember, Isaiah says, he is a precious stone. He is a tried stone. He is a true stone. This is the day which the Lord hath made. Let's look at that now for just a few moments. Also in the book of Zechariah, I tell you, if you want to find a lot of messianic promises, read the book of Zechariah. It's not a very long book in the Old Testament, but it is packed with imagery and promises of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, In that day. In that day. What day is Zechariah speaking of? The same day that Jesus is talking about in Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So what about that day? 
Well, Zechariah says this about that day. He says, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, Zechariah, he's writing late in Israel's Old Testament history. So he's obviously not talking about any fountain that would be found in Moses' tabernacle, in Solomon's temple, or the temple rebuilt under the administration of Ezra. That's not uh, where this salvation, that's not where this deliverance was going to come from. This was not the opening of the veins of any animal. This was not going to be the blood of bulls and goats. This was not going to be the washing of water that took place for Aaron as he was consecrated as the priest over Israel. Any of the things that they had seen done in their Old Testament ceremonial uh, obligations that God gave them, that's all just picture of what Zechariah is here describing for them. Everything that they had done under the Mosaic commandment was all pointing to this time, this particular day. Even even as you look at the Day of Atonement that's talked about in the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus, you'll find that that was actually pointing forward to one particular day. Even though it happened on an annual basis for the children of Israel, once instituted by God to Moses, it was all pointing to one day. One particular day. That's why Paul could say when he wrote to the Hebrews with such firmness that by one offering... He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He said, you had priests in the Old Testament. What did they do? Uh, they made offerings for sin. And all it did was bring a remembrance of sin. He says, but this man, this individual, this high priest, uh, he did something differently. Why? It was effective. It only had to happen one time. And in that one time, it took care of the matter forever. So in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, he says, In that day there shall be a fountain open. What's the fountain under the, uh, consideration here? The fountain is talking about the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about His body being opened uh, so that His blood would shed forth. He would die for the sins of the elect family of God. That's the fountain that would be opened. Uh, we sing a song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You know where that song comes from? This verse right here. He says, in that day, the day which the Lord hath made. You see, there was, the earth, you know, it's in 2 Peter 3, the scoffer there says, where's the promise of his coming? For all things continue. From the beginning of the creation till now. You know, everything just keeps on going like it's always been going. He says this they're willingly ignorant of. That's not true. <laughs> there was a world that was then and a world that's now. He's talking about a world before the flood. I don't know. Back in the maybe late 70s, early 80s, somewhere in that time. Do you all remember those plastic uh, aquariums or whatever, terrariums that were popular? It was a plastic sphere. You could put dirt in it, plants in it, put so much water in it, and seal it up, and it was supposed to be self-maintaining perpetually. If there was any way to try to describe what the world was like before the flood, that's the best thing that I can try to grab to try to describe it. It was, it was, just, it was just very different than now. Rain never came, didn't need to. But after the flood, everything about this world, it, it changed. The Bible talks about when, when it flooded. If you'll read carefully, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But that's, that wasn't enough to cover the entire earth with water. The Bible also says that the fountains of the deep were broken up. You had massive earthquakes going on. You know, there's a lot of things that geologists are studying today that true, true scientists, if they're honest, many of them, in fact, have become believers because of what they look at in creation. And they see that there were some things that transpired very rapidly. That it couldn't have taken uh, millions or billions of years for this to occur. That this was very rapid changes. Well, that's talking about what happened in Genesis chapter 7 when the Lord finally just broke up the earth. But anyway, they, the whole point of why I bring that up is there is a sense that since the flood, the earth continues as it always has. 
I mean, we take for granted, do we not, that when we get up tomorrow, the sun will rise. And that at a certain point in the day, the sun will set. And that's just going to happen and keep happening and keep happening. And it will till Jesus comes back. So there's a sense in which, I mean, we shouldn't get to the point, well, no day is special, you know. But we shouldn't go overboard at the same time. I mean, this is what the Lord has given us. And it's a wonderful thing. But there is a day in history that I believe... <laughs> all of human history either looked forward to or looks back to. And that is a day that God made. Nobody else could make a day like that. I mean, think about what all transpired in that day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. In that day, there should be a fountain open. How did all that transpire? Well, first of all, the Son of God had to come into this world. Uh, the Son of God who had sat at the right hand of the Father, who had the same glory as the Father had uh, before the world was, He had to uh, go, as the Bible says, to the lowest parts of the earth. And that's describing His conception when there He was in the depths of the womb of Mary the Virgin. So that had to occur. Well, how could that happen? It took the power of God. Uh, the Holy Ghost overshadowed her. And here that woman, uh, in a way, was sanctified. And the Son of God was conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit. And then He's become the Son of Man. All of a sudden, He takes on something that He's never known before. Uh, the Son of God that was with God in the beginning, John chapter 1, that by Him everything that was made uh, was made by Him now all of a sudden he is going to come into creation. The God that's only been in eternity is going to step into time. The God that's been controlled by nothing is all of a sudden going to be controlled for the greater part of his 33 and a half years by creation. Now there's be sometimes he suspends the laws of nature. There'll be times that he shows his deity while he's here upon the earth. But in most of his 33 and a half years, his deity is veiled. And men cannot see. What does it say in Isaiah 53? His, his appearance, his countenance, his outward look. It wasn't anything attractive. There was no beauty about him that when we should see him, we should desire him. Why did, why did Judas have to kiss him? Somebody had to point him out. He was so common and ordinary looking that... Judas goes up to him and says, Hail, Master, and kisses him so that the soldiers know who it is they were to seize and to arrest. So the Son of God that made the world. I mean, think about it. Mean, he's the one who created the very earth in which he would come into. He's the one that he says, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. He's the one that Commands and the light shined out of darkness. He is the one that spake and all of a sudden there was dry ground. He spoke and there were trees and there was grass and there were flowers. He spake and the sun uh, was set in her place. He spake and there were stars. He spake and there was the moon. He just uttered from his voice and all of a sudden the sea was filled with fish. And he spoke and all of a sudden the uh, air was filled with the fowls and the birds that fly. He just spake and all of a sudden there were all the beasts that uh, walk upon the fields. He made from uh, the dirt of the ground, the dust of the earth, He made a carcass of a man. And then He breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living soul. All that had to happen for this day to occur. And then the Lord Jesus Christ steps into time. He steps into humanity. Uh, he is uh, curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Uh, that means that there's no way to fully understand how it was that he was wrought in his mother's womb. But he was. I can't explain the virgin conception. I just believe it to be so. I believe it as much as I believe anything. He came into this world at two years of age. As we know, they sought his life. They have to escape to Egypt. Then they end up settling in Nazareth. All that to fulfill prophecy. At the age of 12, he confounds the doctors and the lawyers with his questions. See, Jesus was good at asking questions. 
And even at the age of 12, he understood the law much better than they. Why? Because he's the one that gave it. And so he understood every aspect of the law which he gave. Now, there was not one jot or tittle of the law, as Matthew 5.17 speaks of, that Jesus Christ did not understand and that he did not fulfill. Every bit of it he took care of while he was here upon the earth. And then at about age 30, after about 18 years of obscurity, that the word of God is completely silent. That amazes me. That he's born and then from there till age two, we don't know anything about him except they're living in Egypt. And then we get a little glimpse because they move up uh, to Nazareth. And so we find out, well, they moved to some backwater town called Nazareth. And then from age uh, 12, uh, two to 12, we don't hear anything about his life. Wouldn't you like to know about the childhood of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's some things I'd like some information about. But the gospel didn't think that it was needful that we know these things. From age 12 to age 30, silence. Think about that. The Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, lives in such obscurity, the earth at large doesn't even know that the Creator is here in creation. They don't know it. He goes about it, and even when he comes forth, you know, they said, that's the carpenter's son. Wait a minute, why would we hear him? What's so good about him? Why should he be listened to any more than anybody else? This is nothing more than the carpenter's son. Uh, I mean, I understand carpentry is a good field to go into. Uh, it's a respectable word, but I mean, a carpenter's son, what do they know about anything other than building a home? Well, you know what? That's exactly what we needed. Somebody who would know how to build a home and one who would know how to keep a family. Someone would know how to hold all things together. And he is the foundation of the house of God. And thank God that's so. So he comes into this world and now from age 12 to 30, nothing, no word about him. And then all of a sudden, he approaches John as John is baptizing in the River Jordan here they are cousins, and as far as we know, from the time of John's birth till Jesus' birth, they did, they've not met each other, as far as we know. There's no record that they ever met prior to the River Jordan scene. But here comes Jesus. John knew him. Now, I don't know if he knew him because they had interacted before this. I don't know, because the scripture saw it. But either way, he knew. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. Which, why did he call him that? Of all things to call him, he could have said, Behold the Son of God. Behold the King. Behold any other title of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have used that day. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire John to call him that particular title? Because it refers to the day which the Lord hath made. Even John recognized uh, that he was here for a particular purpose. He was here for a particular day. In fact, Jesus says he was here for a particular hour if we want to get very specific. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. How is he going to do that? In that day there shall be a fountain open. He will give his life. He will be the Lamb of God. He will be the sacrificial offering that will be presented to God and God will be forever satisfied with you and me. So he's presented that day. He's baptized. And of course, his baptism was different than yours and mine. A little bit. Some of you were baptized in creeks or rivers just like Jesus was baptized in a creek or river. A minister baptized him. Laid him back in the waters, brought him forth. All that was the same. How are we baptized today? Same way Jesus was baptized. Something different took place for his baptism. It didn't take place at mine, at least. The Father spoke, said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit of God descended and lighted upon him in the form of a dove. God showed forth, without doubt, this is my Son. Now for three and a half years, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to train 12 men to preach the gospel. The Bible will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 that the house of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is founded upon the apostles, but Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So for three and a half years, he's training these men. 
that Christianity that's going to abide on the earth until Jesus comes back, he's going to entrust that into the hands of 12 men. Really, he's going to entrust it in the hands of 11 because he knows even at that point, one of them is not a true man and he's a betrayer. And think about that. I mean, of all things, I mean, we're going to establish a new religion, a new custom, a new way, new ordinance out of heaven itself. And we've only got three and a half years to set this up, train these men and set them forth. And we're going to trust and hope that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to prevail throughout human history. Well, you know what? (laughs) Because he's the son of God, he's a tried stone. He's a precious stone. He's a sure stone. It was, it worked. I realize that Christianity in America's in decline. There should be more people here today than there are. There should be church houses across America full. I realize that in some ways it appears that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is in decline. I don't believe that it is. I believe it will forever be. It's firmly established. And the king, the Lord Jesus, is seated at the right hand of God. And there's no worry that his kingdom will be destroyed. So he establishes his kingdom And then after three and a half years, and as you read the Gospel of John in particular, as he would anger the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, they would try to lay hold on him. And several times you'll find this description, his hour was not yet come. He even said that to his own mother in John the second chapter, the wedding of Cain of Galilee. Early in his ministry, he says, what have I to do with thee, woman? Mine hour is not yet come. Jesus will say that at least twice. My hour's not yet come. And then he'll make this statement in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, which is important for us to always keep in mind. He says, no man taketh my life. He says, I lay it down. I take it up again. He says, no man on this earth has this power. And even when Pilate says, knowest thou not that I have power to crucify you? And power to let you go. Jesus says thou couldst have no power. Except it were given to thee of my father. Which is in heaven. You know that's one of the few times Jesus even spoke. As he was in trial. You know why he spoke then? Because deity and the sovereignty of God was called into question. And he was not going to allow the sovereignty of God to be impugned that day. He says, whatever ability you see on display today, the only reason you have it is because my Father in heaven has allowed it. You know what Jesus was letting them know? This is the day which the Lord has made. There's a particular purpose right now. And so the only reason that I'm given over into your hands is because my Father and I, before the world began, agreed in the eternal covenant that I would come to this hour for the purpose of redeeming the elect family of God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, He He went to the cross at that hour in agreement with the Father before the world even began. And so before day one of creation, before God created the heaven and the earth, this day was already marked out. And the results of this day is this. Galatians chapter 3. He says in verse 10, for as many as are... Excuse me, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. I wish every works believer in Christianity would read and understand these verses. If you say, Well, you've got to anything, <laughs> you know, you've got to believe, you've got to hear, you've got to be baptized. You've got to continue. You've got to, you just put whatever in the blank. You know what's happened? That person has embraced Judaism. That person doesn't realize, but they're basically, well, they are. They're, they're under the Mosaic law. Notice what he says. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you want to be under the law, you've got to do it all. And you've got to do it all perfectly. The problem is, is even when you're at your starting point, you've already failed. And he says, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not a faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. 
Then he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So the day that the Lord had made, what was the end result? Well, the end result was, of course, you and I would be redeemed. But what were we redeemed from? We're redeemed from the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is that do this and live. But at any point that we fail, we would die. And not just our corporal death where our body goes to the dust of this world. It lets us know that if we fall short, then we are forever dead. What does he say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23? He says, for the wages of sin is death. And he's talking about a death that means an eternal separation from God. He says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here again he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That means he has fulfilled it to a jot and to a tittle. He's taken care of all things needful. In that um, gory scene upon the cross of Calvary, as Jesus is there, even before we get to the cross, as they take those whips and begin to beat his back, as they said, they made long their furrows, as they plow his back with the cat of nine tails, uh, and as he begins to uh, shed his blood, as they place that um, pitiful crown of thorns that they made in mockery, and they drive it upon his head, and then they take a, a reed for a scepter and place it upon his hands and strip him of his clothes and take a purple robe and put that upon him. And then they bow down before him and they say, uh, Hail, King of the Jews, in a mockery against him. Then they blindfold him and began to uh, slap him in the face and say, Prophesy to us and let us know who it is that hits you. Just imagine the humiliation that must have been like that day as those men spat upon him, as they uh, uh, hit him, as he's blindfolded and say, if you really are a prophet, you'll say who it was that did all these things. And then finally they get to the point that it's time to place him upon the cross. And if you've read anything about Roman crucifixion, you know that that was a horrific, horrific way to die. They drove two nails, one each into his hands. And then they would place one through both feet. But the way they would first do this is there would be a pole already set. And it was already set at Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's the place of death. We call it Calvary. It sounds a little better. Golgotha is more fitting and so there is a beam, a post already set in the ground. And so they nail him to the cross beam. And then they began to drive him out of the city. And a parade forms. I mean, imagine, I mean, you have people that are following and people lining the streets and watching this scene unfold. Imagine, I mean, could, you would think human sympathy. Somebody would just step out and say, this is enough, stop. Uh, this man has done nothing wrong. Why would we do this to this man? But nobody speaks up. And finally, Jesus, in his human uh, uh, condition, was so weakened. Now, I understand as the Son of God, he still had all power. But he comes to the point in his human uh, nature that he is just so weakened by what has unfolded. He has lost so much blood. How he's even continuing to function is really because he is God. And he finally, he crumbles to the ground. And so they grab one out of the crowd who happens to be named Simon, not Simon Peter. And they make him help Jesus along. And so he goes out then and they finally get to Golgotha. And there they lift that beam up upon that pole. And then the nails are driven into his feet. And then that sign is placed above his head both in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, saying this is the king of the Jews. And you would think that human compassion, as you're watching this man and two others beside him, go through the excruciating experience of trying just even to breathe. That the way you're situated upon the cross, you have to push up upon the nail going between your two feet to uh, get a breath and to let that breath go. And what pain that would create every time that he would do that. And then you have uh, that wooden beam that wasn't nice and polished with shellac. I mean, here it is. Uh, uh, remember, his uh, back is just ripped to shreds. 
And so every time he pushes up upon this crude beam, that brings more pain there as well. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Can you imagine what it was like? And then there were people at the foot of the cross saying, if you're the son of God, save yourself. They're still mocking him. There's no human compassion there. There's not even natural love. None. It's all been removed. And they all watch. And of course, that event occurs when at about noon, the sun just goes dark. And for three hours, man cannot see. I believe it was about like it was in Egypt when the plague of darkness came. I doubt you could have seen your hand in front of your face. And there in that time, there's no telling what all occurred, but it, it was horrific. When God the Father finally says, the long-suffering of my wrath against the sins of all the elect family that I've held in store for 4,000 years, I'll hold it in store no more. All that I've held back, all my anger and all my hatred and all that I have felt uh, as I have been... Uh, repudiated and disrespected by the creation that I've made. I'm not going to hold back my fury any longer. It is now time for that to be unleashed and now poured out upon one individual in one moment of time. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Think about when you have been wrong and you're rightly angered over something that was done against you. Now multiply that by every child of God and every one of their sins and God has stored up that fury for 4,000 years years and now he says it's time for it to be loosed and let go that's why he says in Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 awake O sword against my shepherd against the man that is my fellow he says smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered so God his sword awoke and if you think what all I've described about and that's just barely touching the surface what I've described about what men did to him that's nothing in comparison, when God unsheathed the sword of his wrath and plunged it into his own dear son. He says in Isaiah, in a little moment, I hid my face from you. Picture the father and the son that he said, I've been in the bosom of the father. And God finally just says, I'm going to turn away. I'm not even going to look at you. I mean, have you ever been so angry at somebody? I just I can't even look at you. That's where it got between God the Father and God the Son, where God says, I can't even look at you right now. Why? Because Jesus, who, was, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us. And now God, in His fury and, and anger against what you and I have done, can't even look upon His Son. So He says, in a small moment I forsook you. In a little moment I hid my face from you. He says, I couldn't even look upon you anymore. And that's when Jesus finally cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Say, Brother Chris, how in the world can we rejoice in that because of what would be accomplished? In the midst of all that, remember what he says, Father, forgive them. I believe he's talking specifically about the men crucifying him. But I think it's applicable to all of us. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then the time comes, he says, it is finished. <laughs> That's what we rejoice in. I, I know heaven didn't rejoice. I know Jesus did not rejoice in the midst of all that terror. There was nothing to find in that to rejoice in. It was all about sin. It was all about fury, all about anger, all about justice, all about judgment, all about the wrath of God. But when God was appeased, when God was satisfied, and, and that's amazing in itself that God in, in six hours of the suffering of one man could be satisfied forever with every elect child of God. That is amazing and that's why we can rejoice and be glad in this day. And that, when Jesus finally says, it is finished, that lets us know that God the Father is forever satisfied. 
That's why we could say in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus because Jesus removed the curse of the law from us and you and I have been redeemed by Him. This is the day which the Lord hath made. It's not talking about the little Sunday school song. It's talking about the day that God made, that God set aside before the world even began for the suffering of the Son of God, for the deliverance of the saints of God, so that we would be able to dwell with Him throughout all the days of eternity. And thank God for that. And while that day, in some ways to consider it, it is horrific, but the result of it is, it's blissful. It's beyond human comprehension that a God in heaven who would make man and then be so offended by man would send his son who is God into this world to suffer for man so that man could be with God. That just blows my mind that God would do that. But thank God that in his mercy, his grace, and his pity, he determines so to do. May God bless you as our prayer.